This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, a forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. In this episode, we speak to Patrick Beldio, academic professor, sculptor, and devotee of Meher Baba and Sri Aurobindo and the Mother, about the intersection of theology and religious studies in his work. We discuss the nuances of the scholar-practitioner model of scholarship and how one can approach an integral pedagogy from this perspective. Stefan and I read a chapter from Patrick's upcoming book titled Spiritual Duality, Mira's Intellectual and Spiritual Influence on Sri Aurobindo. And we discussed with Patrick how he approached building a methodology for this work from the perspective of theological studies and religious studies. The conversation explores the deep-rooted Western influences in the formation of integral yoga and cross-cultural approaches to symbology in the mother's life. We end by briefly discussing Sri Aurobindo and the mother's vision of the supramental manifestation and the transformation of the human into a radically new androgynous and sexless being. All right, welcome to another edition of the East West Psychology Podcast. I'm here as always with Stefan Julich, my co-host. How are you, Stefan? Jonathan, doing well today. How are you? Yes, doing doing well. Um, I've been looking forward to this podcast for quite some time, um, and uh, have been developing uh, a friendship with our guests um, over the last little while, and. Um, uh, I'm really excited to uh, jump into this uh, to this podcast, and I think that um, it will be a very uh, a very productive conversation for sure. Um, so I'd like to welcome Patrick Baldio to the the podcast. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much. It's a it's a pleasure and an honor really to be here. Looking forward to this myself. Hi, Patrick. It's great to see you again. Uh, I don't know if you actually remember. It's been so long, but. Uh, I also attended the the talk that you gave. I think it was at a metamorphosis uh, 
it seems eons ago, pre-COVID. It was pre-COVID. It was a talk that Debeshi's Banerjee had uh, invited me to to give on the mother or my research on the mother and my dissertation research. Yeah, yeah that was my first semester at, in the program. And maybe even the first talk I attended um, in the departments. Yes, very uh, memorable. Yeah, you also spoke about that beautiful sculpture that you did that's in the rotunda of the, the Sufi Center, I believe. That's right, yeah, yeah, in, in Walnut Creek. In Walnut Creek, yeah. Yeah, that's great to see you. So Patrick, um, you're a sculptor uh, and also an academic, a teacher. You teach at university in, um, which, which university are you teaching out of in uh, Washington? To uh, George Washington University and uh, Marymount University in Arlington, just south of DC. Mm -hmm. And what, what classes are you teaching there? I'm teaching uh, religions of the world and Catholic theology courses at Marymount. And then I'm also teaching Hindu courses at George Washington. Um, intro classes, I'm teaching a class on Indian mythology this semester, which covers Buddhist and, and Jain and Tantra traditions. And then um, hopefully next semester or next year, I'll be teaching a goddess course as well. Oh, beautiful. Um, well, I think that that's uh, these, these definitely um, subjects that are also um, in, in our in CIS in the community. And um, I think that it's just going to be great to, uh, to talk a little bit about, maybe we could start by talking a little bit about uh, your involvement in religious studies and in, in, and in theology. Um, and I, I really um, found that when we spoke about this um, earlier, I, I really learned a lot about these as academic disciplines, and I love the way in which you are approaching them from a, a scholar practitioner perspective. So maybe you can speak about these these kind of two academic dis, uh, disciplines or discourses, and how you relate to them as a scholar practitioner. That's a, a wonderful question. Uh, it's ongoing in a lot of ways, but I, my PhD is in religious studies, and uh, but I have a master's degree in theology. And um, I guess when I talk about it to folks um, in a very simplistic, maybe it's simplistic and maybe too simplistic, but theology is the study of a tradition, a, a religious tradition from the inside out, and religious studies tends to be from the outside in. And so a theological you know, study would be more amenable to, or more overtly amenable to a scholar practitioner route, because you might be a part of a community that's answerable to that community in some way, doing academic work about that religion on behalf of that community. But from your own sort of, you know, uh, situatedness, your own social location, um, in dialogue with the wider world and scholarship of all sorts. And you might be using methodologies that religious studies would use as well. Um, it could be anything from art and visual culture and musicology, you know, things we've talked about to sociology, psychology, um, anthropology and, and, and science, you know, sustainable sustainability studies, all the things, you know, you might use on religion but you're doing it really from a place of faith, a place of confession, that this, this particular tradition is my, is my tradition, and I want to understand it better by engaging with other disciplines, making it somehow um, communicable to the wider world, but also to yourself and to your community. And so you're, you, have your, you have a community that you're answerable to, and, 
that kind of puts some boundaries on it. Whereas religious studies, you really don't have those kind of boundaries. You're, you could be an atheist, you could be not a member of that community, and you're studying that community and using all the methodologies I mentioned that would help you uncover and understand uh, the religious tradition and uh, in a better way. Um, both of them can be comparative, so you might be comparing religions in either case, and you have comparative theology versus comparative religion. And there's methodologies that scholars, even just now, it's really those are kind of new disciplines. That, you know, how do you compare? How do you compare religions from a faith perspective, um, and or how do you do it from an academic perspective where there is no faith involved? So, just to sum up, I guess I would say is that theology, the tradition, traditional um, summary uh, definition of theology is faith-seeking understanding. And that's really a beginning a place of experience and faith and heart in, in dialogue with the mind. Whereas religion is really kind of mind-seeking understanding. There's not a sense of the heart or the sense of faith or sense of um, uh, that affect. There might be affective interest, but it's not centering that, um, that kind of approach. Um, one can talk also about the colonial context and you know how these two disciplines grew up in the colonial context, and one would have to understand that there there, there are political implications to these these definitions too. Yeah, I have this. This is a larger conversation that I have with my students, and um, you're outlining sort of the emic edic approaches. You know, so the religious studies more maybe permitting an outsider approach, whereas if you're coming from a theological perspective, especially from within a tradition, it's an yeah. insider approach, more more emic. And we have, you know, at CIS, and because of the strange nature of our school, because of the way that it was founded, and that we draw people from within various traditions into the school, we always say in East-West psychology that we're uh, attempting to train scholar practitioners and how and the question is always how do you do that because if you drift too far in either direction there are issues there seems to be uh, you know a sweet spot that goldilocks zone where people are able to balance the two of them but i know in my own work and my own thought that i struggle sometimes because there are times when my feeling sense is much more kind of devotional and um, uh, belief oriented i don't maybe faith oriented let's say uh, belief is a kind of a loaded word and then there is there are times when i have a more disinterested and critical approach and sometimes i'm being critical because i'm cranky and sometimes i'm being critical because it's necessary to take a step back uh, i was we were uh, jonathan and i were speaking before uh before you came on um, about this and i brought up one of my favorite i teach classes in magic in the western magic and esoteric tradition so one of my favorite uh, uh thinkers i guess maybe the world's leading right now is water hanagraf and he he promotes what he calls a methodological agnosticism and he says it's really necessary for us to actually be able to step outside of what it is that we believe uh, and that's, he's often argued 
against uh, by uh, another uh, person who's in the Western esoteric kind of field, which who's uh, Arthur Versluis, who said you, there ha you have to allow for people who are really solidly within traditions to be able to speak from that perspective and to not necessarily attempt to step outside of it because wouldn't that be false in in that way to you know to artificially separate oneself and i just just to just a, a little bit more i was really noticing in the in the chapter that you gave us to to read for today the profound devotional feeling that i was getting from your writing and it really brought this up for me, thinking about this as a, as a teacher that's trying to get my students to balance these two, you know, both faith and disinterested scholarship, uh, how, how we do that. And I, I was really curious about the way that you approach it after telling us the classes that you're teaching and you're solidly in academia, in very academic institutions. And I'm just wondering how you navigate that. Yeah, I, I find that the emic edic, edic um, uh, that dichotomy is not so easy to personally to parse either, and that I think we're both inside and outside at the same time. And in some ways, I I don't think it's even possible to to locate myself in one or the other. That I'm really in both all the time. And even when I look back on my previous formation as a Catholic, and so I was trained as a Catholic theologian. That was where I got my master's degree, and I also was a, uh, a practitioner, you know, a Catholic person before I discovered Sri Aurobindo and the Mother and Meher Baba and Sufism Reoriented, which is the, the, the tradition I follow now. Um, but even then, I, I felt like I was inside and outside at the same time, because one is, um, especially as a scholar, you're sort of, even if I was a committed Catholic, was not belonging to any other tradition, as a scholar, you're outside the community looking in and sort of getting some distance, and you're going to probably ruffle some feathers as scholars, as theologians always do. There's, there's always a tension between the, uh, theologians and uh, the, the bishops and the, and the priests or whatever you might call the leaders of a particular tradition, and the tension between the theologians and uh, the lay people. So you have, I guess, all those tensions going on, and I. I sort of just, I think what I'm doing in this book, I hope, is, is introduced in the introduction, laying bare, being as transparent as possible about my social location, my, my devotion to Meher Baba and in Sufism, how that in, influences my interpretations of Sri Aurobindo and the mother. And then talking about the method that I, I'm trying to use and learning to, to use really in this book. So um, it'll be interesting to see how people receive it. I, I'm really in process and looking forward to, to responses. Um, I'm presenting this fall in November at the AAR, which is the American Academy of Religion. They meet every November, and I'm presenting on a panel with the, the, the Theology Without Walls uh, group, and other scholars who I admire greatly are going to be on that panel. And I'm presenting a Mayor Baba's uh, kind of Theology, theology of religion there, and I'm going to see what they think about that, because it's really going to be presenting my methodology and what I'm doing in this book about the mother. It's so interesting, you know, to me to 
talk with people who come from within a faith tradition, even if it's even if you've moved from that, but you had your orientation from early on was from within that tradition. And I, you know, I was raised as a kind of a secular Unitarian, I guess I would say. My mother was Jewish, my father Christian, although he was atheist as he got older, um, more atheist, but they wanted to raise us within a tradition and they felt that Unitarianism was a good one. It's kind of like American Sanatan Dharma in a way. Uh, although I always joke that, you know, communion in a Unitarian church is coffee and donuts. But so it was very secular, very socially oriented. And my orientation was always more mystical, I, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I really struggled to find a way in because I was raised as such a secularist. And to, to, you know, to, to, to meet somebody at the center who's coming from a very different original orientation is really refreshing to me and also challenging. Uh, you know, I wrote my dissertation on the mother and my experience with the mother was very strange. You know, I walked into the, without belaboring this, this story too much, I, I came into the, the building the first day of class and um, met with the chair of my program who apologized because there was nobody from the program other than him to meet us, the, the new students. This was in January. And the person who had my position, you know, I'm the program manager now, had just graduated the semester before. So I needed a job, so I said, please hire me. And he took me to his office and, and interviewed me for a couple of hours and then said, okay, I'll hire you. He was a little shy to hire another student, but he hired me and he brought me out to my desk and sitting at my desk was a, an Indian student uh, who had come to do her PhD in the program. And she on the computer tower was in the picture of an older woman smiling benevolently. And I looked at the picture and I began to weep. I began, my, I began to cry I, and I didn't understand why I was reacting this way. And I asked the, her who this person was, and she said, well, don't you know that's the mother? This is her school. I knew nothing of the history of this school. And uh, I just said, and I, I don't know why I'm saying this, but she's the person that brought me here. And I just knew it as, you know, as plain as day that she had brought me here. And I still to this day can't explain it. So. That was my first real taste of de devotion, and I had had you know many experiences before that, but nothing along those lines. So, how did I get there from, you know, basically I was also joke that, you know, my mother. <laughs> um, forgive me if you ever hear this, mom. That my mother's idea of you know kind of church was going to the mall on Sunday. And yet, I, yet this just kind of came came to me. So I'm, I'm really fascinated with this. How, how, so how, then how do I show up as a scholar with this devotional practice that's very real to me and honor other people's paths so that I'm not stepping on their feet and I'm not telling them this is, I, I don't actually believe this is the path anybody should be following. It's mine. Um, maybe that's the, the secret to be able to hold that as sacred. Yeah. It seems to be. I, I resonate so profoundly with, with your story and with that struggle, too, at the same time, because 
but I think um, it, you're doing what what I understand to be theology. Theology is such a funny word because it's it's really a Christian word, it, or it has been. It has a Christian history, and Hindus are starting to embrace it as a word to be to use. Like there's there's Christian theology, but there's also Hindu theology, or there's Dharma theology, or there's you know whatever theology you want to say. And I I I resonate with that word more and more, I guess, and feel that my focus is as becoming a theologian, but a one who, like you just explained, one who is is faith seeking understanding. But my faith, I guess, of um, of, of Mehrbaba and Sufism that is open to other faiths. It's not sort of closed in on itself, but one that is, um, well, Mehrbaba teaches just, just as the mother and Sri Aurobindo does that, um, there is no competition between these religions, um, that all of them are, um, you know, they bring some divine blend or force, uh, to the table or to the world and and if you believe in rebirth and karma and that sort of thing then one mirababa teaches that we will be all of them and we we will have the opportunity to learn from all of them and that there comes a privileged stage where we get to integrate all of them and then an even more privileged stage where we get to um use that as fuel to transcend and unite and i don't know just go beyond the limitations of all of them even as we bring all of them with us, I guess. Um, and I guess my my theology and my scholarship is aspirationally going in that direction. And to the extent that I can can explain that better, um, I hope uh, will be it will be a success. And to the extent I don't, you know, if I'm closed in on myself and sort of doing the Pre, I don't know, the, the way Catholic theology might have been done in the Middle Ages, where you sort of are proving why your team is right and the other team is wrong. Um, that's how theology was used then. But I mean, in the 20th century, in the postmodern context, theologians aren't doing that, at least the really good ones, even in the, even in the Catholic uh, Christian traditions. Yeah, I think, I think you're re really, um, I think you're speaking to exactly how I've understood um, in CIAS, the idea of integral education, um, because I think that it demands both end. You just, I think it's the idea of keep on saying end. Well, what lens did I use to understand? Is it etic? Okay, and what? Emic, and what? How are these limited? How can I keep on adding and, and kind of multiplying uh, approaches and experiences and affects to, I guess, generate a thicker description of some kind of, of, of an experience. Because really, at the end of the day, this is all we're trying to find language for experience. And um, so I think the question uh, that you raised earlier is also embedded in this, is the question of methodology. And I really loved, um, we're going to talk more about your book in a, in a second, but I, I read the, the introduction, or first chapter, was it? You sent it, and introduction, and, and it's a matter of you uh, I, I kind of confronting the fact that there needs to also be not only maybe new languages, but new methodologies, because at the end of the day, um, you know, part of the postmodern rupture is to acknowledge that knowledge is, is produced. And so how, and what kind of knowledges are we, we, we producing? And so I think the question of methodology is central to this. And, 
you know, CIS, for instance, um, based on an integral education, but even you could call it, uh, I, was, I was watching a talk by Robert McDermott and Debashish Banerjee last night on this topic. And, and Haridas Chowdhury, one of the main, he would call the spiritual education, that this is a place for a spiritual education. So in terms of methodologies, how can we kind of, how can we, uh, with that in mind, how can we embrace and create new methodologies that are going to serve this kind of goal of, of understanding or, or at least producing spiritual education. And one thing um, I wanted to bring in from the chapter that we read of, of your book, um, I think that it's, it's, it talks, it speaks almost exactly to this idea of, of experience and knowledge. Um, but there's a quote by the mother that's from this chapter. I'll just read it here. So she's saying, what happened in my life is that I never studied or knew things until after having the experience, only because of the experience and because I wanted to understand it, would I study things related to it. And I think that's a, it's interesting in terms of what we're speaking about, like the religious studies, which is going to, let's say, start more on the outside and try to understand something as it pulls you in. Well, what what is this kind of proposed experience that these people are having how can we under, how can i understand it better from the outside as opposed to this idea of the experience is leading um, i've had the experience and now how do i understand it how do i understand that from the inside out and i think that 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 it it, it kind of first of all it challenges you to say well the mind wasn't the center of this experience necessarily so what are different ways that I can know this experience? What are different ways I can put language to this experience or expression? So arts-based research, for instance, becomes quite valid in this sense because it's going to say, well, this expression as you, you know, you as a sculptor, me as a musician is, is, is actually a way of producing knowledge from this experience. Um, so there's just some thoughts and I wanted to kind of tie in that quote because I really, really love that, 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 that you brought that in from the mother. But um, so I have a specific question then after all of that. Um, let's maybe get on to the subject of, of this chapter that, that Stefan and I read of yours. The chapter is called Spiritual Duality, Mira's Intellectual and Spiritual Influence on Sri Aurobindo. And so the mother, um, Mira Alfasa, also known as the mother, um, is the, the, the subject here of this chapter. And so I guess in terms of methodology, how, how can we approach somebody like that? Who is, you know, maybe from the religious studies perspective is a person in history has a, a body that, 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 you know, is under the rules of like, like that is part of the, the natural laws of nature, for instance, you, you know, um, as opposed to an avatar, which might be more of a theological approach to this person. Um, and I was wondering how, you know, in your like development of methodology, you know, how you're going to be, how, like, let's say the hermeneutics of this subject kind of changes accordingly. Um, and then how, how do you integrate those things as well? I, I feel a little sheepish about this because I'm still in the process of, of working this out at my methodology, but um, I feel like in this chapter, and maybe it's helpful to know, this is a chapter two in the first part of the book where I go first to explain different stages of growth in Sri Aurobindo's life um, and how he, he came to his vision and his teaching. 
and that it, it, it and I'm arguing that it he was inevitably led to Mira Alfasa and who became the mother. And this chapter is chapter two that describes her and her life and how she um, came to very similar perspectives as him, but in a completely different context. So I think one part of my method here is, is historical. I just really wanna lay out the history and, and really understand what are the social and historical contexts that each of these two figures had, and they were quite different, yet they come to very similar conclusions, or at least they think they do. And so I'm, a, I'm approaching this story um, and, and as a story, but also when it's history and, um, and using their memory of it, I guess I wanna center their memory of it more than um, something else. And I, and you haven't read, I mean, we haven't talked about the first chapter, but I really go head on with uh, Ashish um, or Anish Nandi, who's a post-colonial psychology, you know, psychological um, or psychologist, I should say. He he really takes Aurobindo to task for being someone who never was able to conquer his inferiority complex with the British colonialists, and that he failed at the end of the day to bring forward, you know, um, a, a, a self that was liberated from that tyranny and that trauma. And that he was, his trauma led to partnering with this French woman and retreating into another colonial context of French India and going into seclusion. No, you know, not really, he and his interpretation is super a caricature, I would say, but very interesting. Um, so anyway, I, I wanted to take on a very religious studies critical theorist like him and uh, offer another perspective in that chapter. And then building on that, this chapter of the mother comes along to sort of give more evidence about why she's not a colonial influence on Aurobindo, that, he's, that she's actually very different from that, <laughs> quite different. And that she's having her own experiences and that she's of this Western esoteric tradition, Kabbalah and other influences. And But reading the, the Gita, reading um, the Raja Yoga by Swami Vivekananda, and, um, but having her own experiences too that are completely separate from any tradition that are her own, that are quite beautiful and unique. And I wanted to give voice to that beauty and unique and, and through comparisons with you know, like the Statue of Liberty and uh, um, I guess artwork, I guess that that has purchase, I think, with my audience, I'm hoping, because it's an American audience, one that's, um, I'm also bringing in um, a comparison too, a theological comparison with Judaism. And I'm want, wanting to bring in how she, her life can be looked at as, a, as an example of a Jewish um, pattern of going from you know, exile to the promised land or going from being the chosen people to the people who expands that chosenness to the globe. That there's a certain privilege that God bestows on the Jewish people that is intended to go to the rest of the world. I see that pattern with her and sort of compare her life with the suffering servant image in, in the book of Isaiah and how that's really 
uh, evocative for me and um, I'm hoping it's evocative for my audience too. And so I'm bringing in my own history, my own formation as a Catholic too, because uh, my own theological study is, is motivating this too. And I'm trying to bring, integrate really, I mean, it's kind of a personal thing. I'm trying to integrate my, my multiple belongings, you know, being a Catholic, being a, a devotee of the mother and Sri Aurobindo and Mahan Baba. So I'm sort of building the, as the book goes along, I think it, it's not finished, but I, I think that's what I'm doing is building this, uh, this comparative theological approach that won't, I think, become more, won't become obvious until the end, maybe. But right now, I feel like there's, there's threads of that going on here that I'm trying to build. This is so interesting. Uh, I'm, you know, I've, I've read uh, um, bits of Nadi's critique, and I, I thought, you know, to an extent, and he's, you know, it's a psychological critique, but to an extent, he's projecting, it seemed to me. And I, there's the way in which we, and, and this isn't, I mean, it's not a, I, I don't mean that as a criticism, uh, I, because I think that we see, I, 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 this comes from a, from Adi Da, right? Da Frijan. Years and years ago, I read a, something in one of his books where he said, we, you are what you meditate on. So whatever it is that you put your attention on, that tends to be what you reproduce and what you see in, in the world. So if you're a, a critical post-colonialist thinker, you're going to tend to see things through that lens. And I think that there's a place for that in a way in my own work with the mother and Sri Aurobindo, especially my dissertation, I was, I had, I put the mother between two mirrors. It was a little, it reminded me a, a bit, the work that I was doing, I was reminded of that when I read, finally got around to reading the Mahabharata. And there is this just endless movement between the two families, between the Pandavas and the Kauravs, and between, I mean, you could say between light and dark, but essentially between, in this kind of, um, pendulum swing between uh, between extremes and and I found myself just arguing with myself because I could easily have like taken Leon Festinger's ideas of, of uh, you know uh, when prophecy fails right so what do you do you either give up and you say okay I was wrong or you double down right and you could argue, I mean, I saw, I could actually have made a critique of the mother after Sri Aurobindo died and what she was doing is a kind of a doubling down on something that that wasn't happening. Um, if, I, it, if I attempted it, if I did my critique from a kind of a materialist perspective, well, he died and then she died. But I found that that putting her between these two mirrors and having this kind of argument with myself that my thinking about it got, I hope, more and more refined, and that I could see that there was much more to the picture than a single critique would would cover, and so I think it's an, in some ways unfair. It's 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 fair, and I think that it's necessary for people who have a particular lens that they're using to apply those that lens, and I and I think that even the mother said, unless you can hold. An opinion that's the exact opposite of the one that you actually do hold, uh, and really hold it, really see it as the truth. You're not going to get any anywhere close to the truth, because and this is this brings me to you know Jung's ideas of God as a kind of a complexio oppositorum. 
all of these things are present. And I think you, you bring that out in this chapter, as I, I'm remembering that this, how do you, how do you approach this in a, in a way that makes sense where um, all of this is present simultaneously? You know, do you fall down on one side? Do you hold that tension? I hope I do that. I hope that, you know, in the, in the previous chapter of when I do take up Nandi's work, that I'm trying to stand in his shoes and and offer his his perspective as fully as possible so that when I do respond to it, it's not one of rejection. It's one of, okay, there's something, where, where can I see where he is offering a helpful per, uh, methodology or a helpful hermeneutic that I can use? going forward that I didn't have as an insider as an you know or a devotee and I'm hoping that also my I'm also an outsider to him and a critiquer and I'm also offering hopefully a, a, an accurate critique of his work I think you're right I think there is a projection going on there um but he's also just I think not knowledgeable about the, the full you know oeuvre you know of Sri Aurobindo and the full oeuvre of the mother. I mean, who is really 66 volumes or so. And, um, but, uh, but he clearly wasn't enough, you know, he didn't familiarize himself enough. And one could, and that's where I kind of go with his critique or how I critique him. But I love how he identified right away the psychological trouble that Aurobindo puts us in, which is, he, he calls him insane. He thinks he's, he's he, He's insane and he has a history of insanity with his mother. And so I wanted to hit, hit that head on too. And like, well, what, how can insanity or madness be also explored? And so that's another angle I'm also taking throughout this book. In fact, I'll be, you know, in the second part of the book, I go immediately into the four personalities of the mother. And the first one is the Maha, Maheshvara, Maheshvari, I'm sorry who is the personality of wisdom. And I'm sort of, well, what was what wisdom is a madness? Or, you know, what madness is wisdom? And and how how does the mother talk about that? And um, so I get into mental annihilation, which is a whole tradition in, in Hinduism uh, called Manonasha. And I, I feel like she is um, is a part of that lineage of teachers who talk about mental annihilation. But I, I'm trying to turn the whole critique on its head that, yeah, you're right. Aurobindo was insane from seen from the perspective of the lower mind because he was having his mind destroyed, but he was finding the super mind that was replacing it. But what does that mean? You know, how does that, how does that happen? And, and how did the mother experience that? And how did it happen for her? And how did the arts become important to express her, her process? of that and and the poetry of Aurobindo as well so i guess yeah i think you're right there's a way of like mining the critique or the the, the person who's maybe completely rejects Aurobindo, but there's something true in it that we can take forward and i'm hoping to, that i'm doing that in this in this book this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, 
Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's really, uh, I can't really bringing out the kind of the visionary aspects of like you have to de- deconstruct or you have to break habits or or our cultural forms and norms that aren't serving you. And I think I was very much attracted to Shurabindo's um, and the mother's work because of that. I was, I, I kind of, when I found um, integral yoga in my life, I was looking forward to, to construct a different world for myself. I was in critical relationship with where I was from and I wasn't finding it. It was addressing my, 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 questions or like problematics in a way um and yeah i think that's that's very interesting that there is a there is confronting that horizon um that normative horizon which keeps the chaos out but really stepping over over it and then being able to look from the outside in it's 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 it can be very um it can be very dangerous psychologically um, and culturally speaking, but it's, it's also necessary, you know, to keep bringing in the, the, bringing in the, the new, bringing in the infinite. Um, and I also think that as a Western, like, you know, you're bringing up the idea and this chapter definitely deals with this, like the, the, the cross-cultural aspects of the fact that this is a, a French woman with a background in esotericism and, and, uh, and, uh, and Judaism, for instance, Kabbalah. And then there's an, an Indian man who was actually kind of raised in England and then comes back home and finds this, this, uh, this, this need to, to fight for freedom, like as a freedom fighter, you know? And I think that that the cross-cultural aspect is very interesting and important too. And at the time, this is, you know, this is really when, when, when I think some of the, the main problems that we are seeing now play out of modernity, of globalization, um, I think they, they were really um, intuiting and kind of a little bit of a precursor to when these problems became very explicit. But um, that's, that's the way that I found myself engaged in in their search for um, understanding globally and universally uh, a new politics and new eth- ethics and um, a new spirituality, um, um, not a new religion necessarily, um, because that wasn't part, they were looking at religion as something that was keeping things separate in many cases. But um, but that's, that's interesting. And I was just going to say, uh, maybe bring in... Um, Stefan's work, because Stefan, your dissertation, um, and then you wrote an article, um, which sort of is uh, extending in different ways, your work, but um, it really was uh, important to me to, to be able to look at it from multiple perspectives. And you really brought, uh, I didn't have any background, or I didn't have the experience of learning um, where you were coming from until I read your work. Um, the, the really deeply cross-cultural aspect of the, of the integral yoga. But you wrote an article in this book, um, um, Integral Yoga Psychology, and it's called An Alchemy of Heaven on Nature's Base, Intimations of the Universal Opus in the Integral Yoga and the Divine Life in Man in the Work of C.G. Jung. And so I was wondering, maybe 
if you could uh, speak to that work and how it relates to kind of, I guess, what I brought up here, but also to uh, the chapter um, that uh, that Patrick wrote. So I think that thinking these two articles together can it can be very productive. That's great. I, I should say I did read that that article and, and not recently, but I enjoyed it very much. Oh, thank you. So I kind of ran out of steam in the second half of it. Um, trying to finish it uh, while I had COVID also. Um, I, well, something that Patrick, something that you were talking about uh, before, and uh, I, I think would kind of dovetail um, nicely. And that is that Jung also, I mean, I discovered when, as I was reading from a dissertation, um, I had to focus on the mother's work because the universe of you know, just the, the volume of work that the mother and Shurabindo produced together was just too much for me to incorporate. And I wanted to use a Jungian lens, but I felt that the further along that I went, I, I knew that I actually had to read, really read Jung. And the, my reasons were essentially that every time I came up against a critique of Jung, uh, almost in, inevitably, it's, it felt to me like the person that was critiquing him hadn't really read him thoroughly. I actually, after completing my dissertation, I, I moved into Jung more thoroughly. My practice with the mother is much more devotional and my reading is much deeper in, in Jung. I read his collected works three and a half times. Uh, I, I read from a certain point forward the first time that I read. But then I went back to the beginning, to even to the Zofingia lectures, and I just kind of read all the way through. And I've read most of his letters and a number of his seminars. They keep producing new work now. So, and read the Red Book four times. <clears throat> I still have not read the Black Books because I've been onto something else lately. But the deeper I, I got into my reading, the more I realized that often what I was ex seeing the critiques were people who had only read one book or two books or were even reading somebody else's critique and then kind of joining, you know, following on their coattails and using that critique as a way of criticizing. And I just felt like this is not my understanding of this person at all. And I found that it was the same thing with the mother and Sri Aurobindo, that it's really easy to read the Life Divine or read, uh, you know, Supreme's, uh, you know, the three volume on uh, on the mother or um, the, his kind of abridgment of the of the agenda or even the mind of the cells and then just establish or base your critique on that and I essentially uh, using a Jung I used a Jungian term or I, I kind of glommed onto a Jungian term which is living symbol and I realized that in in order to honor my own experience of the mother that I I had to look at her through that lens as a living symbol. Now, th th there's some complications there as well, because symbol, often people will look at the word symbol and they'll say, oh, it's, you're, you're essentially placing an interpretation. You're, you're making her symbolized something. Jung would call that a sign, you know, I, from a kind of a sign. Yeah, so different but that's what yeah catholic theology says the same thing a symbol is not a sign right yeah. so i said no no, no she, this this is a this is a an entity an individual a being that is alive for me but if i if i approach her even from integral theology 
I find that there are times when I get kind of sheepish because I realize my relationship with her is so personal that I might not be able to make myself understood in an, in the, in an integral yoga context. So I wrote these papers and I felt Debashish, thank you know, Debashish is so generous. You know, he allowed me to write them from my own perspective. And even in a book on integral psychology, at the very end of my paper, I say, you know, the the thought, the the thoughts, or how do I put this? The the I fall down on Jung's side. And not that I'm taking sides, because my I don't, Jung does not a picture, I don't have a picture of Jung on my puja table, the mother is there. But my relationship with the mother is so profoundly personal and almost unspeakable in a way. And yet, I, but I'm working with Jung's ideas constantly. And I find that they work really nicely together and it, it informs my devotional practice and it also informs my wisdom practice, if I want to call it that, because it enabled me to just explore, to just say, okay, Max Theon, who's Max Theon? Okay, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, and to follow threads, to go back to Pascal Beverly Randolph, and to Andrew Jackson Davis, and to Swedenborg, and Mesmer, and, and trace that back to, you know, shamanic practices, and to really expand out without attempting to say, you know, the mother was a shaman or the mother was, uh, you know, the, the mother was practicing mesmerism or something like that, just to understand the container, the context in a, in a broader way. I don't know if I can say it any, any, any better than that. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know. How, I don't know what response there is for me. I just feel like, uh, well, I just, I, what came up for me actually, as you were talking was a conversation I had with Peter Hees uh, years ago, 10 years ago, you know, coming, this coming November when I made my first trip to uh, the Sri Aurobindo Ashram to do my dissertation research, research there. And I stayed for like three months. And I had, uh, I had met Peter actually in New Jersey a few months before that. He had been kicked out of India for his book and that whole brouhaha happened. But I had, I had read the book and I thought it was so helpful and so lovely and it actually increased my devotion. To to Arpin and the mother so well, so I was surprised by the reaction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, I now understand the con this, the Hindu for context we're dealing with now, but uh, that reacted against him. Um, but he then we so I met him in New Jersey. We got I was he was at his parents' uh, uh, beach house or shore house they called it I guess and. He was, you know, asking me about my practice in Sufism, and I couldn't. It was sort of unspeakable too. I just, I was wondering, how do I talk about this? And this has had to do with Mirababa and Sufism. And here I am studying the mother and Sri Aurobindo, and yet I have a connection, a deep connection and devotion to them too. Um, but then I went when I, the second conversation I had with him was in India and in Pondicherry once in November, and he asked again, "So why aren't you writing about Mirababa?" instead of, you know, the mother and Shurabindo. I, I, I basically said, I'm not ready. I just, I know I'm not ready. I can't do it. I just, I'm not capable. Of it. That's, what I, that's what I thought. And that's what I said, essentially. I'm just not capable of writing about this most personal practice I've been doing for 12 years and now 22. Um, I don't think I'm even ready now, but this book that we're talking about is my attempt to do it through the mother because um, 
my my murshids, the, the my the teachers of Sufism, they use the mother and Sri Aurobindo all the time to explain the work that we as Sufis are doing so that we could understand it better for ourselves and uh, just be more conscious um, because we consider them to be collaborators in this in this work that we're doing. And so I'm hoping at the other side of this book that I would be able to talk more openly about Mirababa. Um, but I, I, I don't know how that will happen. I do have a plan afoot. We'll see how, how it goes. But I just, I, re I resonate so fully with this is so personal. This is like unspeakable. But on, on my end too, there's just immaturity. Like I, I'm, I need to mature more. I need to become more grown up as a, as a sadak, you know, and so that I can speak about it instead of, you know, injecting my, Psychological issues. <laughs> yeah, I think I was maybe a little bit more foolhardy. I just dove right in and well, wrote my dissertation. Something to that, right? And I, as I've gone as I've gone on in my life, I've actually become much more circumspect and 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 want to honor that relationship. So I'm getting less inclined to uh, to write about it. Um, but I think that I'm also less capable of writing about it strangely. I guess ignorance, you know, there's a certain, you know, bravado that comes when you're, when you're completely ignorant of a subject. Uh, and now I know a little bit, I know enough that I'm, my, my sensor is, my, my very strong superego is coming in and saying, maybe you should <laughs> think twice, you know, measure twice, cut once. <laughs> That's right. Know that well. You must have done some carpentry in your years. A little bit. I was terrible at that. Also, I, I worked with, uh, talk about spiritual masters. I worked with a very good friend of mine who's a physician, just retired. Um, but he his his earlier incarnation was as a construction, as a carpenter. Ah. And he he's the one who told me, yeah, measure twice, cut once. And he said, but in your case, measure three times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so, that's minus three or four times, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, when I'm making sculptures, it's, I have a saying that if I don't bleed on it, it's not art, because I end up cutting myself <laughs> or hurting myself in some way, not being careful. Patrick, I was wondering if you could speak about, um, you, in, the, in this chapter, you bring in the, the golden robe of the, of the mother, the robe, and and you speak about the the supramental descent. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and and how that fits into the larger themes of your of your chapter. So the golden robe experience of the mother of uh, it was so important, and I um, kind of use it as the prototype of her later realization in 1956 which is called the golden door experience or the, the golden day that uh, devotees celebrate every four years on the uh, leap year of February 29th. Um, but anyway, the golden robe. So that was uh, her recollection of that experience happened while, while she was living in Japan during World War I. Uh, remembered that as a 13 year old, I think it was, she had this experience in Paris for a good year of going to bed at night and then leaving her body, able to somehow um, remain conscious as she was sleeping. Her body was sleeping, but she was going out of her body and then going above the city of Paris 
where she lived um, and was able to join some forces of, of light and of divine presence that cast this golden garment down uh, like a tent, I guess, over the city and uh, was able to seek out those who were suffering in different ways. It wasn't sort of, she mentioned specifically people who were, who were marginalized or suffering or somehow having trouble and that this robes was wanting to heal them and that she was a part of that process that she it was sort of a robe that i guess was clothing her and she didn't have to do anything she just watched it happen and watched it heal and make people happy that was a kind of lovely thing and and she just had to be joyful herself like her i got the sense that in her description that her joy helped the happiness happen more the more she could just lend her support that way it happened more um so that gave her a sense of, you know, that her role and her mission in life was to cast that robe over everything, not just Paris, not just France uh, or Europe, but over everything. And, um, and it would be uh, a non-intrusive, non-coercive, completely benevolent force of love and compassion and wisdom, truth and all of that. And so when she met Sri Aurobindo, she felt, ah, oh, you know, I guess I, I see that her experience of that robe was like a setup for her to see her mission in life was to go global, go big or go home. You know, this is time to cast this robe over the whole universe, in fact, not just the earth um, and not just this universe, but many universes, I would suppose, all of creation. And meeting Sri Aurobindo was like, oh, I found my partner. We can finally make this happen. And uh, of course, Shirobendo drops his body in 1950, and it hasn't happened yet. Six years later, or maybe five and a half years later, it happens, and her, her experience is that finally, this, this golden world, not just the robe, but this whole plane of consciousness is, is broken open and descends uh, uninterrupted uh, onto the earth in a new way that has never happened before in her experience. And um, I don't think I talk about this in the chapter, but I think it's significant that she had that experience of the golden door opening up and breaking it. She had a golden hammer and lifted it to break the golden door to allow the golden light to come down. So gold is breaking open gold to allow gold. And I, you know, one can talk about gold and I, I've worked with gold as an artist, as a sculptor, I've cast it, I've plated it, I've, I've gilded it. I love gold and you can feel the vibration of gold if you've worked with it long enough physically. You can like, I, I can physically, you know, know that I'm holding um, a sheet of gold versus bronze or, or something else. It's like they, you, you just know the vibration of these metals. They're alive and they're, they're telling you something. But you know that the vibration of gold is so much more corrosive resistant and able to just hold itself up. Um, in a way that other metals can't. And that if you ally gold with it, you just, you're going to strengthen it right away. Um, and if you wanted to extract that gold from that alloy, you would, or that mix, you could, you could do that and the gold will not lose any of its atomic structure. Whereas if you extract other kinds of metals from other mixes, other, other alloys, they'll, they'll probably be brittle and they'll break down. So gold has this incredible resilience, non-corrosive, you know, at its you know atomic structure at you know that level, so I think gold is really crucial. Going you know in in her you know, as a symbol, 
as we were talking about symbols and sign, this is not a sign. You know, a sign, at least in Catholic theology, when we, we were taught about it, a sign is something that uh, sort of pastes the meaning on, on, on something from the outside. Like a stop sign means stop, because conventionally we've agreed that this octagon means stop, but there's nothing about the octagon that is stop. But water is inherently uh, a symbol of, of life and death, both, you know, baptism and resurrection in the Catholic context. So it's obvious that you would use water in a baptism and, and talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus because water is an obvious symbol, not a sign of that. So anyway, gold is the same way. It's got this atomic structure. It's got this incredible physical properties that lend itself immediately to talking about uh, a transformation of, of matter and consciousness and the earth and all of that. So I don't know if that gets us to your question, but that's sort of, um, I guess I'm using that story to, to set up her later realizations. And I think going forward too, how, how, how she uses art to um, express aesthetically this vision this golden vision, and of course, gold, and the golden vision is there in Sri Aurobindo's poem, Savitri, so fully. Yeah, the symbol dawn. I mean, we're getting into the symbol dawn and the golden light there, and fire. All of that is there. So, yeah, does that answer? Or is that... This is fascinating to me. When I looked at that image of that vision that she had, my thoughts ventured my my thoughts kind of moved to, more towards the the symbol of the robe itself rather than the gold so this is really in really enriching my understanding of this i i immediately began to think about mary about the virgin mary who wears in some iconography she wears that the robe of the night it's a night the night sky that's filled with stars and this is also seen as kind of spreading out and covering people. There are wonderful images from like Mexico, I, I guess. Of, right, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Right, uh, and that beautiful robe. And there's a celestial mystery in there also that ties neatly into kind of hermetic, you know, ideas, ideas of the chain, great chain of being and the, the movement up through the planets and how like in, in Kabbalah, being you know, the mother is the is Saturn actually, but superior to her is the realm of the stars that can be seen as kind of a cloak. I mean, I just kind of went in and and explored it imagistically. Oh, wow. um, but I'm just wondering if uh, I, I mean your take on that just from like the Catholic perspective of of this robe, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess you know my riff here on gold, I really didn't put it in the chapter as much as I riffed here because I, I will put it in later chapters, but the robe is where I, I talk about that in relationship to the Statue of Liberty um, because, of course, that's an image of Mary or inspired by Mary um, as well as other, other images of, uh, you know, Egyptian and, and Roman and Greek image, uh, goddesses as well. So it's sort of a it's really a, a mixture, um, but Mary is there in terms of that robe, and I think also her her position as uh, stepping on the chains in the Statue of Liberty, which are a symbol of uh, the chains of slavery in our context in the United States, but that harkens to Mary stepping on the snake uh, in the iconography there. Um, but she's, I guess, if we if we focus on the robe, 
I guess I've not thought about that very consciously. Um, I'd have to kind of remember my own pilgrimages uh, in my mind and heart, as well as to Italy and Europe, where I have um, in my own devotion to Mary too, growing up saying the, the rosary and stuff like that um, with my grandmother, like all, all those things sort of come up for me personally. But when I, when, so if I was to do a, another chapter on the mother and the robe um, and, and talking about Catholic iconography, it would go in a very different direction. Um, but I think, I mean, what I talk about in this chapter is has to do with Mary and as it relates to the Statue of Liberty. And that there's a sense in which this is a garment that can, that connects the low with the high. As you were talking about, I guess there's planes of being, and there's the chain of being, and there's like the, the, the many spheres, um, the music of the spheres, you know, that is the vibrations of that are like waves of the garment. And I would think one could talk about those waves and the fabric of the universe in that way. And that there's a, um, and that gets into Vedanta, I think, or, um, well, many traditions that talk about sanskaras and koshas and um, the different layers of, of, you know, gross matter, subtle matter, causal matter, and then other matter, you know, other levels. And I think that's being in play there too. The Catholic iconography doesn't have that understanding of those layers, but um, it's there in the art. I guess when I do pilgrimages, when I've done them in the past and I see icons of Mary and she's dressed in gold and she's also covered in blue, like blue or dark kind of blue, that would be another interesting study to relate here. I'm not sure the mother describes colors and, and that would be fun to, to see how that might match up but uh... there's a church um down across in san francisco across from yerba buena and i believe i can't remember who it's dedicated to it's a male saint i think it's not um wasn't dedicated to the mother wasn't dedicated to mary um but the uh altar, I guess, um, and I don't know the technical term for it, but above the altar, there's kind of all of this kind of architectural stuff that moves up to the stained glass window that's all the way up above. And I haven't been able to find a really good photo of it. I keep promising myself that I'll go in and take a picture of it. But when I was in there doing my dissertation, writing my dissertation, and I was in there often, because my association, my the lens through which I saw the mother, for some strange reason, was very Catholic, and I was not raised a Catholic, and yet maybe because of reading Jung, it's the deep kind of Christian yeah. uh, lens that he uses. But if you look at this altar, you can see the movement from the material plane up to the transcendent as this thing kind of moves up in a kind of a triangle, an extended isosceles as a triangle that moves up and then points towards the stained glass above, which is the image of the transcendent. And I thought, well, it's there also, this idea of the levels is there, but it's not forefronted because the church doesn't want you to focus on it. That's how I thought about it, but my theological knowledge is really limited. But I could, I saw it, maybe that would be incorrect, maybe I'd be burned at the stake <laughs> in, a, in a more enlightened 
era for that, but it did seem to me that there was this inherent understanding of the the uh, the polarity between God as a transcendent being and matter, yeah. and how we got here and how we and how we get out uh -huh. from the predicament that we're in. Yeah, and Mary certainly certainly operates as like a a bridge between the, the two extremes, right? She sits midway, I, I believe, yeah, yeah. or at least no. I think actually Christ is midway, and then she's just above Christ. She's the the intercessor. She's the one that brings him into the material world, but he's the doorway that gets you out. But interestingly, also in in integral yoga, the mother is the intercessor. She's the one that she's the one that you're in communication with. Sri Aurobindo has taken that kind of transcendent pole. She often talks of him as Lord, and to me, you know, I, I, again, I, I grow shy of getting involved in theological arguments with people who really truly believe. But symbolically, it seems really similar to me, and it seems to me that that's what, yeah, what I'm engaged in is a is a, 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 a symbolism that it, that pre-exists me, and isn't tied to any one faith. It's like in our DNA or, or in our spiritual DNA, anyway. Yeah, they function so similarly. It sounds like. Yeah, the map or they, the maps are so beautifully evocative. Yeah. Right, and you bring up in that in that chapter, you talk about this kind of like extraordinary way in which what they're doing really maps nicely onto Western the Western traditions, and you found a way to 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 show the Catholicism of it. And she was raised in France, which is very Catholic, right? But she's also Jewish, so the kind of more Kabbalistic understanding is there. Although Theon was an iconoclast, right. and and she doesn't, you know, she's very kind of overt. She says, "Yeah, I wasn't really raised within the tradition. My parents are Jewish, but I love the way that you kind of just say very gently, yeah, but you know, what was the conversation like at the dinner table? What were what was the community that that her parents were involved in? Were they?" Just in casual conversation, the symbols would come up. They would inform everything that people within that community were doing. This was a period where the, Jew, the Jewish community had just gone through, through two would-be messiahs, and were, the community itself was undergoing a period of attempting to assimilate much more into secular society because I think that they were tired as a community of just being ostracized and ki killed, frankly. Yeah. So, but the symbols were still alive. Yeah, yeah. Atheist Jews are still Jews. <laughs> They're still culturally there. Yeah. This conversation is really, uh, really inspiring um, to hear you two with such uh, deep uh, backgrounds and 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 rich studies and experiences. Just kind of, you know, go through a gene genealogy or archaeology of these signs uh, of these symbols, symbols, um, and. Uh, I just wanted to, I know that it's been about an hour, so we are coming close to our, our, our general time here, but I did want to kind of um, push, not push, but like, um, let, let's, let's think through the ideas in the chapter um, it will, based on what we're speaking about, but like of the, of the future, of the signs or, or uh, symbols that are kind of drawing us into a future. And, you know, I brought in the, uh, the idea of the supermental transformation and that is definitely it's an idea it's it's some people 
let's say it's a reality again based on what methodology where you're situated it's it's um it's 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 either an uh, an idea or it's a reality or it's a bit of both or um it's a symbol or it's it's biologically funk happening you know like the, the laws of nature are are changing uh, according to um you know the evolution of consciousness for instance um but the idea of the super person superman in sri Aurobindo's language and this this uh, experience that you shared of the mother kind of cr- having having the the, dis- the cracking that that golden orb and the the supermental consciousness um, kind of coming out into the earth, um, and I just thought it was interesting to uh, to talk about that symbol for a second. Let's maybe we could discuss that and how it relates to uh, your involvement in gender studies as well, because you did bring that up in your article. Um, uh, there's a quote here, just a short quote um, that I thought was really, really interesting and um, and can kind of spark this, this conversation. So this is from your chapter. It was here's level of the dark inconscient that Mira discovered that she, um, what she found above. It was a sleeping version of the principle of the human form she encountered on the supermental planes. And so, yeah, like what, like in terms of the symbol of the human, if we, if we call it that, or the, the, the supermental sim, sim, symbol in which we, we are being pulled towards in a way, this transformation, um, how, how, how do you think about that? How does that act in your life? And maybe in the, the teachings of, of Sufism and, and Mahababa, but also just how does like, how, how are you working with that idea? How do we activate that? Um, without it becoming something that is just completely faith-based in terms of we don't work with it, we just accept it and we don't question it or we don't activate it, for instance. We just, it's a transcendental given. But that's sort of what I'm trying to explore. And it's definitely a tension in my sadhana, in a sense, is that I'm not really sure what it means and how it works. But in terms of the, the you know, you go on to say that it does the supermental um, manifestation in the the principle of the human will result in, according to the mother, in a sexless being, uh, um, so an androgynous being. So a lot of questions here, but I just wanted to open that up and maybe you and Stefan could could respond. And, and... I love that question or set of topics. Um, that's the next chapter. In fact, it's the theme of the next chapter after this one, which is just, uh, I forget the name of it. It's, it's called The New Being. Um, the I don't know, I think I call it the sexless vision of the integral yoga or something. I mean, I go from Aurobindo to the mother to their offspring, you could say, to the new being. And that the mother herself, that Mira herself is the embodiment of the mother that gives birth to herself as the new being. I guess that's how I think of it. And I was actually, Stephen, I was thinking about, I even quoted your article about the Jungian perspective about the, the, the one that becomes the two that produces the new third. Um, and I think that's the way to kind of, that's what I was thinking about it. Um, initially, I mean, as I begin the next chapter, um, but then I take up the issues of sex and sexuality, um, gender, and, you know, all the, the, the sort of, you're wondering like, well, how do we keep this? Well, I think that up, the things we're going through, the incredible turmoil socially and psychologically um, and globally that have to do with the LGBTQ marginal community trying to bring them into the mainstream 
or they're, they're, they're just coming, actually. They're coming, and that's disrupting the cisgendered, you know, heterosexual mainstream, and we're freaking out, uh, you know. And yet, I think that's precisely what this supermental force is wanting and doing. I think it's evidence of it, I guess I would say. Like the new being is coming. It's here and it's happening. It's happening through, I think, one, one place you could say it's happening through this negotiation of gender, sexuality, orientation that we're doing now all around the world. I think that's the new being manifesting this, being the sexless being that the mother envisioned that she saw coming from above down and awakening from the unconscious down below. And, it's, and we're in the middle and it's, it's painful. Um, but we're, I think we're all kind of like having to negotiate it and accept that this is happening and, and say yes to it or get drugged there by our, our the scruff of our neck. Because we're if we reject it, and I think there's a lot of dragging going on as most people are reacting against it. Um, but that reaction is itself a part of the process and, and necessarily part of the process. And um, it's sort of a, it's the, I would relate that to the personality of Mahakali and her personality of strength and that she's bringing this to be, she's forming this new being by, with a lot of force and, and awakening a lot of reaction and uh, dealing with that reaction somehow creatively. So I talk about that, those issues in the next chapter and um, uh, can sort of dig in deep and, you know, what does the mother and Sri Aurobindo say about homosexuality and things like that, which they don't, they don't say anything. I mean, there's one place that Sri Aurobindo talked about homosexuality, but he says it in, in such a kind of heteronormative way that you kind of have to, you have to go beyond what he says, but look at other things that he says that are, because he wasn't interested really in gender issues and orientation issues. That wasn't the purpose of the integral yoga. But how do you connect? I think this very sort of uh, spiritual practice that is aiming for a sexless being that's also sexless in the body. I sculpted this. I mean, I I even like research, what does what kind of genitals would I sculpt? You know, in that figure, I had to kind of think about that because it was nude. Murshida wanted me to make it nude. And how do I do that? And she didn't give me any direction. She and so I just thought, well, maybe as in the end, so the beginning, or as the beginning, so the end. That I, so I looked at fetuses and what what do the um gen what do the genitals look like in a fetus? And I just duplicated that. And it's a very stylized and kind of beautiful, you know, form. That's just you can see how the the two genders would come out of this one form. And so I just put it there and I took and so and I, I made this I was making a seven foot model at the time out of clay and I took many uh photographs of it and I did a crotch shot you could say as a part of the PowerPoint presentation that I gave to Mershita to look at as because we were doing this together and uh she didn't say a word about it and she just displayed all of the images to our community at one at one point to to say that the sculpture is going forward. It's it's going well. I'm very proud of it. And here's some pictures of it. And then that was the only thing she said to really give me a sense of approval that I had chosen what she thought was a good good way, a good direction for the genitals. <laughs> but the idea that this sexless body has everything to do with, you know, our bodies, <laughs> and uh, that in that it's not just a symbolic androgyny. It's a physical one that we're looking forward to, and it's not just a 
um, it's not going to be unsettling for cisgendered white males. Uh, it's going to be unsettled for the LGBTQ community as well. They're going to have to. I think there's no way. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be unsettling for every everything and everyone because it's really that sexless ideal is so. I think dangerous and wonderful at, at the same time because it just destabilizes. I don't care what you are and who you think you are, sex, you know, gender-wise, orientation-wise. I love. So I guess that's where I'd begin to talk about this subject. I think I, you know, I knew I had known uh, trans people um, in my life before coming to the school. Um, I was actually, um, can I say this publicly? I was in a relationship with uh, a woman who was trans. Um, who was completely female, had, had transitioned completely. Um, interestingly, I didn't know it when I entered into the relationship. I discovered it during the course of the relationship, and I was like, yeah, well, you know, I love this person. Didn't So I, I had had kind of experiences that told me that it was not something to fear or think of in negative terms, like it's against nature or something like that. I mean, Jung himself says that the individuation is opus contra naturum anyway. Nature is kind of lazy. It'll just keep reproducing itself. And the, the, the place of the alchemist in this is to actually in, engage in a creative way and help do the work of the divine um, in, in order to affect the transformations that are necessary. So, but I was thinking, when you, when you were speaking, I was getting chills and I was thinking, um, the first thought that came to my mind is wokeness, you know, wokeness as awakeness, you know, that there is, it's a really, it's scary. And I, there, I have a lot of resistance, even with all of my experiences, I still have resistance because I have functioned in a binary system for my entire life. And it's kind of natural to do that. But I always teach my students that, that, uh, you know, I, I believe that it's necessary to move beyond that. And this came to me through my reading of the mother and Sri Aurobindo, and also through my deeper reading of going into, and I mean, uh, it's academically, my, my going further and reading Theon, and uh, understanding, looking into the idea of the glorified body, and and what does that mean? Traditionally, looking at looking at Jung's kind of comments on it, and I th I feel that this. The, the uh, what's happening socially, just as you were saying, I mean, it's necessary, it's happening, no matter whether we like it or not. But it does, as it's unfolding, it's unfolding slowly enough so that we, see, I, we I can see it as a kind of a dialogical process. It's like the conversations are necessary, as painful as they are, and as violent as that they, they can get, but it just seems that it's going to come no matter what. And then I began to think as you were talking of the end times in the Abrahamic traditions, and we're getting close, you know, it's another 200 years less actually, like uh, 180 some odd years that are left until we reach the end. And what is the end? Well, the end is kind of Adam and Eve 2.0, right? It's like, isn't it to move back into or out of this gendered dualism? the way Jung puts it is to move out of the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius, where spirit and matter are, are unified. Um, and isn't, isn't that the glorified body? Isn't that the Gnostic being? Isn't, isn't that what they're talking about? I don't know, but the mother's the, like the image of the supermental ship, this vision that she had of the body, what the body is supposed to look like. 
um, it's not gendered. She, she often, I, she would not often, but she said once in some conversation with somebody who was, I forget what the question was, but she basically said, what is it about no sex, don't you understand? You know, that, what is it about not eating that you don't understand? You know, if you engage the world as it is, you're engaging in the, all those systems that are no longer necessary and are creating, as you said, a kind of a drag. It affects every, not just sexuality, but also uh, your your uh, the gastronomical system and everything else. That because she talked, I mean, in her changes that she described in the mother's agenda, it's so. Um, it's so painful, it's so distressing, and it's so difficult. And it's sort of like she's saying, this is, you're gonna go through this too. Like the whole, everybody's gonna to have to go through this transformation that's gonna bring on illnesses and, you know, I don't know, just a reorganization of the organs and a, a new experience of, of proprioception, like how I see myself located in the world is gonna be a totally different experience. Um, in my where my body ends and where my consciousness begins or you know all of that stuff she she talks about a lot as being uh, a very destructive process that leads to new wonderful things but it's it's ruinous at the same time it's ruinous and wonderful at the same time and it's and it's physical not just sort of spiritual and you know who you know the soul is going through a difficult fighting with demons but also joining with the one it's like no this is a an embodied process that affects the very um, organs within us. Uh, it require illness and require very difficult things. Yeah, that's definitely one of the, the biggest questions of the future. And I think that this, you know, it, everything is consciousness, everything is the one. And so, you know, the power of consciousness to to participate in a new creation, I think is, is really um, having that kind of that framework, that metaphysical um, framework is, is key here in, in understanding these ideas, you know, it's not a fixed sense of biology or psychology or the human. I mean, even in that um, quote of yours, uh, it's, you've quoted it, um, the principle of the human form in, in, the kind of discourses I'm involved in, that would be more appropriate to say post-human because the human is, we are critiquing the ways in which the human has been codified and solidified into certain normativity. And so it would be a post-human uh, uh, body, a post-human um, androgyny in a way. And, um, hmm. and yeah, it's, it seems I, I wanted to... Um, it, it also seems like I would, I wish we had another hour together, but why don't we uh, have do this again? And I would like to, the, to continue the conversation and maybe we could speak to you more from your artistic background next time, because today we were engaging with your, your new book, you as a, a scholar practitioner, um, and uh, you're also a profound sculptor. And I encourage all our listeners to go to your website, which is posted on the, in, in the information um, and and look at uh, your work, uh, the new being, for instance, we you spoke about, and it's uh, it's just deeply uh, inspiring and, and moving um, work. And I think that this the role of art and creativity in 
in what we're speaking about, I think is, is a part of my interest. And maybe that's somewhere we, we, we could continue these lines of thought and how is it possible to, to, to make a future um, and, and how is art involved in that? How can art and the process of creation kind of make new um, organologies, make new senses or, or find new ways of perceiving um, and find new ways of relating really to, to the divine, the infinite, what is outside of our, 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 the, our kind of boundness um, to, to a certain place. Sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks for being with us, Patrick. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank both of you also. Thank you, Patrick, so much. This is a really wonderful conversation. Thank you.